This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to installment number three of the Peninsula War Saga. Now, if you're listening to this on the main show, you'll be thinking, hey, installment three, what the heck happened to installments one and two? Well, quite simply, folks, you missed out. I'm very sorry. If, however, you head over to Patreon, you will find that for the princely sum of £1 per month, you can get your hands on installments one and two, and you're going to want to get your hands on them. Because in installment number one, I sat down with the brilliant Josh Proven, and we traced the origins of the Peninsula War. And then in installment number two, we did the arrival of the British via the battles of Relitha and Vimero. So if you want those, feel free to catch up. You can also enroll via Spotify, £1 a month. I know it's very mean to put all of this really good content behind a paywall, but you've heard the, the story behind it all by now. Um, it's cracking stuff, hours of content you're going to want to invest. But today you get this one for free and you're going to enjoy this because far too often when it comes to Peninsula War stuff, all we ever bother to do is the stuff about the British, which is, yes, very interesting, but it rather misses the point that there's a whole Spanish story about Spanish people living in Spain, where this war is being fought, who have their own reactions. And so today we're going to start to look at the Spanish side of things. And I am joined by the brilliant Silvia Gregorio Sainz. Silvia is a lecturer at Oviedo University. Her PhD uh, looks at I kind of Iberian studies and British-Spanish relations in the Peninsula War. She's a particular expert on the region of Cantabria and Santander and the way in which the war kind of unfolded in the region. We've had conversations in the past about Sir Hume Popham, 
um, because Popham did love to poke it. I mean, there's a reason actually why Popham pokes his nose in Santander, which in fairness we'll probably get to in a specific episode further down the line. Um, but Sylvia, welcome. It's great to see you. How are you doing? Hi, thank you very much, Zach, for inviting me to the Napoleonicist and for giving me the opportunity and the platform to talk about the role Cantabria, well, mainly the town, the town of Santander, played in the Peninsula War, which seems to be somehow forgotten. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, I think we probably need to do some basics before we start kind of building outwards, because with the best one in the world, most of my listeners aren't from Spain. And so they're mm -hmm. probably not that particularly familiar with Cantabria today, mm -hmm. let alone what's happening during the Peninsula War or indeed before it. So what's the region like before the French occupation of Spain in 1808? Okay, well, when we talk about Cantabria during the Peninsula War, um, we have to take into account that it didn't exist as we know it today at the beginning of the 19th century. It was in the process of building its own identity as a region. So today's territory was divided in the Provincia Maritima de Santander, the maritime province of Santander, divided into two taxing districts, Santander itself and Laredo, and then Campo Ambalde Redible, that's the southern part, today's Cantabria, belonging to Palencia, that's Castile. So not, not just that. Um, the territory was divided, but there was another difficulty to be added. That's at that time, both Spanish and British sources used different names to refer to that territory, Santander, La Montaña, Cantabria, and also to its main town, Santander. It was referred to Ander, Andero, Saint Ander. So that made it even more difficult to trace, locate information. And that's why I more or less limit limited my my scope the scope of my research to the town of Santander that was the capital at the time. But before talking about what the town of Santander was like at the time, it is important to talk about Cantabria's strategic position on the northern coast that Wellington was well aware of, um, and benefited from it in the last campaign in the peninsula. Its central position on the Bay of Biscay and on the northern end of the Ebro made its control essential, essential to command the southern part of the country by blockading the route from France to Madrid via Burgos. So that good connection with the Meseta, that's the central plateau, also facilitated or made easy, uh, made easy contacts with Madrid, thanks to El Camino Real, the royal road. road. But at the time. So not just the, that good land infrastructure, but Cantabria had good sea communications both with France and Great Britain. And Santander was the best port at the time in that part of the coast for three main reasons. First, are good natural characteristics. Large warships could moor safely despite weather conditions. It was the best, the, the best maintained together with Santonia, and it has the best connection, the best roads with the interior. Santonia didn't. So its control will allow not only to run military operations, but also to guarantee 
communications and deliver supplies and troops along the coast and with Great Britain, avoiding at the same time enemies' wounds. And British engineers and officers, for example, Captain Dick Digbe from His Majesty's ship uh, Cossack and Captain Birch were aware of that and transmitted it in their dispatches to uh, the British government. But the, there was a main handicap. It was impossible to fully protect the province and Santander um, due to um, that duality, sea and land. Um, too many men were required and that was not possible at the time. So talking about what Santander was like at the beginning of the Peninsula War, I can say that there were around, or it is said that there were around 8,000 inhabitants. It was the capital of the province and had an active commercial life um, with a powerful trading class. We have to take into account that from the 13th century, it had been Castile's port. And during the 18th century, um, its importance as a trading town has increased as it was granted the title of Ciudad by the government, by the government, it was authorized to trade with America and the Royal Consulate of Sea and Land was created in Santander. So it became a commercial axis hub in the peninsula together with other Cantabrian ports. And that had two main consequences. First, Cantabria was not unknown um, Great Britain, better, was not unknown in Santander, neither was the Cantabrian capital unknown in Great Britain. There were constant trade relationships from the 14th century, although a bit weak, between a big, a powerful country and a backwards, let's say, territory. So raw materials were exported and manufactured products. Um, but, um, and there were also military contacts, but hostile ones, and also even cultural ones, because there was a reduced British colony in Santander connected to trade and industry. So not sure whether that answers your question, Seth. I mean, that's a geography lesson, like a, a social history lesson, an economics <laughs> lesson all rolled into one. Um, I literally have nothing else that I could possibly think of to ask at this stage. Um, so I'm I'm going to actually know what I am going to ask on that is what's the kind of general um, attitude towards the monarchy like within the region at this point in time? And the reason that I'm asking that is purely that we have this automatic assumption that because of what Napoleon does to the Spanish monarchy, everybody literally everybody suddenly goes this is unacceptable um stamps up and down and rises up against the french which isn't actually a fair reflection of the fact that it's a society with a wealth of opinions on a long continuum and actually some people are probably quite pleased about you know bonaparte's attempts to sort of come in and reform the country even if it is at the point of the bayonet mm -hmm. so what's that kind of connection like with monarchy is this quite kind of a a small c conservative um type of region is this a region that's probably more likely to identify with um ferdinand and where he wants to go with things or is it more sort of radical bonapartist revolutionary in its outlook 
or is that just a stupid question because actually you've got all three come together in one region i'm not sure how to answer that question but um i think that due to the presence of um bishop rafael tomas menendez de luarca that's a key figure in that in this story i think that we i will define it as conservative though uh, and because he played um before the peninsula war he played an important part also against france he hated france so he's faithful do you say faithful those that followed him yeah so um there, there was a growing anti-french feeling in 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 Santander, in, in the town, following um, um, his, uh, the bishop. There was a main figure there, but not sure how, how their the reaction to, to that, to so, the connection to the monarchy. I mean, look, I'm That's known, good, but yeah. I'm known for asking awkward, deeply unpleasant <laughs> questions on this show. Uh, no, but it's an interesting question. Um, well, let's let's take this from a, a different angle then and discuss how the news of Dostomayo mm. gets there, because this is a crazy and th this whole thing is a crazy story. I mean, I've got in my notes at one point we've got discussions of a casual fifty thousand dollars in terms of a down mm -hmm. payment, suggestions of corruption at one point in time, um, yes. people lining their own pockets, as you do. You know, what's what's fifty thousand dollars between friends? Um, but in terms of the news getting to Santander in the first place, the news of Dos de Mayo, that is, um, a British agent ends up being involved. This sort of feels very James Bond. So start to, to give us the detail behind all of this. Yeah. So uh, before the Dos de Mayo, um, I have to say that Santander inhabitants know at all times about Napoleonic victories in, in Europe. Uh, their advance in Spain towards Portugal, the Aranjuez mutiny, King Ferdinand's um, imprisonment in, in Bayonne and the French operations in Spain. And how did they know about that? Rumors that reached the port, the papers, Santander agent or Santander representative in the Royal Consulate in Madrid, but mainly French inhabitants that openly celebrated Napoleonic victories in the town. There was a big colony, a big French colony in Santander. And and that, of course, increased that anti-French feeling. And regarding uh, the Dos de Mayo events in particular, Santander inhabitants knew about them on the 5th of May, when um, some Cantabrian commissioners returned from Burgos, where they have been sent to congratulate King Ferdinand on his way to meet Napoleon in Bayonne. So maybe we can see here the connection to, to your previous question the monarchy he was they were really happy about ferdinand being um appointed king um so um they returned without completing their mission and they and let um, santander inhabitants know what was happening but it's important to mention at this point that in late april due to several supposed attacks on french inhabitants in the city on the 21st and 22nd, Marshal Pessieres, I'm sorry, but my French is terrible, uh, warned um, 
warned um, Santander authorities to control Santander inhabitants or he will destroy the town. So on the 1st of May, before the 2 de Mayo event, um, Cantabrian authorities, including Bishop Menende de Luarca, um, published or officially asked the people to stay calm. Following then that, that general scheme of Spanish provinces uprising, but those official proclamations could have a double reading because they were saying, "Okay, please stay calm," but they were acknowledging at the same time that Santana inhabitants had done nothing. So, weren't threatening them to be punished for something they have not done might spur. Uh, some conspiracy or encourage them, encourage people to raise. And in the same vein, the, uh, Bishop Menendez Luarca, that knew what was happening in Asturias, that intention to face Napoleon, surveyed the most important inhabitants in Santander on their view of a possible uprising in Santander. And the results are quite surprising because on the 22nd of May, um, he published a proclamation, a document encouraging Santander people to, um, to, to, to take arms. So we see that the uprising was already in the mind, both authorities and the people. And going back to those de Mayo, um, Santander inhabitants knew more details from a first-hand witness, the one you mentioned before, the British agent in Santander, that's the council John Hunter, that arrived in Santander on the 18th of May. He had been transferred there from Madrid, where he was responsible for the exchange of prisoners following French authorities' order. He had asked to be sent to Andalusia, but French authorities rejected the idea. They didn't consider it proper and sent him to Santander instead. And there, Hunter was a key element not the only one in Santander uprising on the 26th of May. There are three main facts that caused uh, the uprising in Santander. First, a second warning by Bessiers. Bessiers, yeah. Then the second and most important one, Hunter was ordered to be arrested and sent to Burgos. His letter to the Duke of Infantado before leaving Madrid, offering himself to transmit any information from Ferdinand VII to the British govern government might have helped in that decision. And also the fact that the French authorities might have finally realized that sending a British agent to a port close to Great Britain might not have been a pretty good idea. And then the third um, fact, that caused the uprising, and that was the last straw, I think. It was the inhabitants, a French inhabitant's aggression on a child. And that's the most popular reason that appears in any source. But as I have said, Santander's uprising was neither that spontaneous nor that dark as it has always claimed to be. And a British agent played a key role in that uprising. I mean, it's a it's one of those stories that just sounds ever so slightly fantastical, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely surprised that 
the the warrant was issued for the arrest. It's interesting what you say though about this these sort of rumors of Spanish locals attacking Frenchmen um, and mm-hmm. that kind of stoking tensions even before huge amounts have really happened in this whole story. Is there this sort of ongoing tension as the French come in uh, and, and almost sort of a, a suspicion even when actually Napoleon's sort of proclaiming that yeah. no these are these are just about supply lines to Portugal just about the occupation of Portugal you don't need to worry these are just depot troops is there this sort of skepticism amongst the locals even before Dostomayo kicks up so you know Dostomayo in effect what we're saying is is an event that doesn't come from nowhere there's this sort of undercurrent of discontent yeah indeed if i remember it well the um, um at- those attacks on the 21st 22nd of of april in santander were connected to the fact that one of um the authorities were said to be um, gathering volunteers to support ferdinand if that's that's what it was said so yeah that was the feeling that something was not going right in the and also that in Santander there was a growing anti-French feeling yeah be- even before the um, the Dos de Mayo yeah so okay so I'm now going to ask an incredibly dumb question which is how do the locals react um, which from what you've kind of set up for us here it kind of implies that you know they, they didn't react particularly well but rather than just sort of other oh, locals didn't like it give us sort of the details of how this response kind of plays out how do they try and if you like sort of sever any semblance of french control um i'm gather i gather bessier will still have been around you know how does that then play out how does bessier respond how does this entire thing happen basically Okay, so mm, people, I'm not sure if they were directly affected by that, but the lack of a central power, or even if they have time to feel that lack of central power, because events develop too quickly. And although, as I said, there was growing uneasiness towards the French community in Santander, the situation remained more or less the same because local and provincial authorities and the Ferdinand or the French were doing their job. They were running the their, their region, even if there was that conspiracy or rumors of a conspiracy behind. So it was not until the people took up arms that authorities that reacted and joined the declaration of war to Napoleon, taking over popular sovereignty in the juntas, the governing board. So in, a, in an attempt to control anarchy, so they were somehow forced, authorities were somehow forced to channel that situation. Yeah, it was a revolutionary solution at the beginning, but then the members chosen maintained the same status quo. There is an excellent book about those governing bodies by Antonio Moliner Prada, and he um, analyzes the, those juntas pretty, pretty well. And Cantabria was not an exception on that. After the popular uprising, because they have been moved to do that by authorities, in my opinion. 
authorities in, in Santander constituted that junta to take the, the required administrative and military measures. And they named the, the bishop as its president. So unlike Asturias, in Cantabria, there was not an institution or a body that gather all the different districts and thus Santander, the town, took the lead. So once the junta was constituted, the bishop and the bishop accepted, not at the very beginning, the presidency, it was necessary to look for national and international help to face the Napoleonic troops and daily Bessiers that was in Burgos. So Great Britain and British agents played an important part there. So it was a different way to to try to to try and obtain British help, a different way from Asturias that sent agents to London. So an institutional relationship was established. And in Cantabria, it was through British agents in Santander instead. So yeah, but so I mean, this is a challenge, right? Because yeah, the the. Obviously, this is a challenge. Um, talk about stating the blindingly obvious here. Um, but you've got this situation where the centralized control is just gone, you know, because mm -hmm. the the head has almost, not quite literally, but almost been chopped off the the Spanish government. Um, and as you're kind of saying here, you know, there's this need to find a way to to bring order to the province. Mm -hmm. How different is Cantabria's solution to what's happening in uh, let's say Galathea or Andalusia or, or Valencia or wherever it might be, is there kind of a, a commonality between what's happening in these different regions or does every single region just come up with its own solution? We're going to go with this because this is our idea. Oh, yeah, oh, the central government was um, beheaded. Yeah. F uh, physically, but it, the idea, Ferdinand was still that image of Ferdinand was still there. So, and I think that that worked for all the authorities and for all the people. So he was not physically in Spain, but he was in their mind. And regarding the solution adopted in Cantabria, I think that it's quite similar for, um, in at least in, it's similar in Asturias, in Galicia, um, because they all, um, went for creating that junta, that governing body. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm not an expert on this, but I think that because they knew 
um, how those governing body worked and they have they they were used to them. So I think that all provinces went for that to try to give a solution and to control people somehow because they they wanted to avoid somehow revolution too. It was a revolutionary solution, but without revolution. So the only way they knew to control that it was taking um, that uh, or creating, constituting those governing bodies. That... So it's a revolutionary solution to prevent a revolution, which would then bring in a more revolutionary solution, um, all of which is trying to counteract a sort of quasi-revolutionary state let's call it in the form of napoleonic france albeit not the ultra revolutionary mm. state this is this is getting very confusing um a bit. but it's <laughs> it 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 really kind of taps into this idea of how everything sort of seems to hang on a knife edge during these few months everybody's sort of scrambling around they've got these these sort of ideas but nobody quite has a strong sense of of how this is going to happen and i guess in situations like that it's it's the people right and their personalities mm -hmm. that end up being really key in, in what shapes this so let's let's dig into those we've, we've talked already about um hunter we've also got the bishop with the name that i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce <laughs> because you do it much better in spanish than i ever could um so so talk us through the bishop british agents other locals and what they're like as people as opposed to you know that what they actually do in terms of their personalities what are we dealing with here and how does that in turn influence the events as they play out okay so well during the first months of the peninsula war that's from may to november 1808 and that's the scope of the article i published last december um I will four people will stand out uh, because they made possible not only the first contacts between the Cantabrian authorities and the British government in London, but also because um, they made possible their reception of its aid in Santander. And who were they? On the Cantabrian side, although Asturian by birth, the said bishop, Menendez de Luarca, president of the Junta, and that's responsible for leading the province in that tumultuous time. And on the British one, three agents, Consul John Hunter, mentioned before, belonging to the Foreign Office, and Majors Philip K. Roach and Sir James Lee, under the War Office orders. The most surprising thing in these relationships um, is their antagonistic nature. On the one hand, we have one of the most enthusiastic representatives of the conservative branch and reactionary ideology of the Spanish Catholic Church that had always promoted a view of the British as heretic. And on the other hand, agents from a country that for centuries had promoted the view of Spaniards as religious fanatics controlled by superstition and the Inquisition. So they're here, it is the remains of the black legend. And how can this be explained easily? British bishops hate for France was absolute, more intense than possible disagreements with Great Britain regarding faith. And also, and most importantly, 
only Great Britain could help Spain against Napoleon. So, okay, they needed Great Britain. And going back to Hunter, Roach and Leith, why them? Because they were first-hand witnesses of events in Santander and they reported them to the government from the very first moment. Also because they represent the three-stage process in Santander for obtaining British help to face Napoleon. So to, to cut a, a long story short, you can say that Hunter was the uh, Cantabrian authorities' first attempt to get British help. Because on the 29th of May, uh, the bishop requested him to send his government a bunch of dispatches to inform them, mine, the 29th of May, it was before the Asturian agents sailed to London. So on that day, the bishop was already requesting Hunter to send uh, that bunch of dispatches to inform the British government of the situation in Santander and asking for their help. But that didn't happen because um, the main condition Hunter established was apparently not met. He, um, the official request has not been signed by all the members in of the junta, just by its president, which was the normal procedure of these organisms in difficult times, though. So then came Roach, Roach came and enabled that first contact between Cantabrian authorities and George III's ministers. There is a really, really interesting dispatch dated on the 1st of August in which the bishop thanked the British king for his future help, and also he, he encouraged uh, British trade in Santander port. So he didn't miss the opportunity. So, but um, at that time, um, the bishop also requested um, Roach for two million reales de bellón, that's Spanish dollars, um, cannon ammunition, and ammunition to prepare corps of 2,300 volunteers to defend Cantabria. That uh, request uh, was not met again. Why? The same reason, the junta's apparent lack of endorsement. So they were looking, British agents were looking for the bishop's legitimation, if I'm right. So, and third and last, Leith, who was appointed supervisor in Asturias, Leon, Cantabria and Biscay in August and had direct instructions from his government to closely collaborate with the bishop. He was the one that finally granted Brit British financial aid to Cantabria, indeed twice, although far, far less than requested. So from their dispatches, it can be inferred uh, that they share the same feeling towards Menendez de Luarca, and that was distrust. Might that be for his religion's religious position? Possibly. There is evidence that British agents always preferred to deal with civil authorities. And that's why they always addressed them in the first place. Um, the bishop's contradictory attitude or rumors about the inadequate use of British money to pay off prior debts might not have helped either. So, it is really interesting the view of the bishop that British agents transmitted to the government, and it was based on two main characteristics. The first one, unlimited authority, and the second one, undeniable patriotism. 
So that second feature, together with his militant religiosity, he was presented and represented as a warrior priest, is the one that leaked to the British press and the readers, inspiring an affection among them, and in general, of the Spanish cause that was used by British government, um, as a poem published on the Morning Post on the 17th of December suggests. So its title is Lines, an answer to the Architiron's attack on the character of the Bishop of Santander. Signed by somebody who identifies himself with the initial B. And it seems to be a response to the Bishop's death sentence by Napoleonic authorities published in November. So it's a really interesting personality. Remind me that another episode talk about him in detail too i mean talk about a character but instantly really interesting that this guy ends up in the uk press right i mean that tells you a lot yeah. about the scale not only of the interest that they are talking about specific individuals um and and what they're doing but on top of that um that there's this this kind of buzz that's that's being fed the whole time mm -hmm. you know we'll we'll take this news um we'll know this guy by name and then we'll defend his reputation on top of it um so it's all it, it, uh, and this bear in mind folks that this this is continuing into so november did you say that that thing appeared in the the morning the post? poem yeah, uh, yeah the poem in december the in 17th december. of december yeah. So we're talking. He was the already in Asturias. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, this is this is Peninsular War fever in action, right? Um, mm -hmm. Although I would make the argument that actually Peninsular War fever doesn't entirely go that fade into the distance that much because there's often this thing in the press of just taking little snippets and chucking them out there and sort of maintaining that that general interest. Um, we've talked about what the authorities want, and it chimes very neatly with what I was saying to Josh way back in episode one of what the Spanish really don't want at this moment in time is an army. They want money, more money, a little bit more money, and some mm -hmm. guns and ammunition. That would be lovely. Um, they They do get some money. They don't get an awful lot, though, do they? So for context, Asturias gets $450,000. Cantabria gets 50000 Why? Why this unevenness? I mean, I guess one of the questions is, why does Asturias get quite so much? But also then, by extension, why does Cantabria get quite so little? Okay, I've been asking myself that same question but there are several factors that might explain external and internal factors that might explain that internal factors the decisive one would be a really long french occupation uh, but if we focus on those first months why the few money given to cantabrian authorities just a five a fifty thousand dollars um First, because um, well, Santander's interlocutor, the bishop, might have had something to do in that. As I said, British agents distrust, distrusted him, 
religious possession, rumors, contradictions. He was full of contradictions. He expelled student troops from Santander, but asked Lee to intervene to defend, to defend the province. He requested help, but rejected anything but for money. He seemed to collaborate, but didn't want to offer detailed reports of needs and expenses. So I'm sure that had something to do with the few amount of money. But also the fact that British agents didn't quite seem to understand how the juntas worked internally. And that led them to interpret the bishop's decisions or actions as an example of his despotic, his authoritarian personality who wanted to act behind the juntas back, which at this point was not the case. And uh, finally, um, the different way of addressing the British government, different from Asturias, uh, via its agents on the northern coast might not have been that effective. But neither Asturias, but Asturias one was a bit more effective than Candavia's one. And regarding that, those external factors, we should bear in mind that Asturias requests were supposedly done on behalf of several provinces, and among them, Cantabria. The main problem was the coordination among provinces to distribute British money, that it was not effective. And there were quite a lot of arguments about that. The solution created the Junta Central. They were responsible there from dealing with um, the British ally uh, getting um, money, ammunition, all that, and distributing it. However, we have to, to take into account to remember that Santander benefited somehow from the money received in Asturias from Great Britain. But it was not because Asturian authorities um, share it but because British agents on the northern coast distributed that money they received that in that way. So that might be the answer. So I'm loving the underhandedness of what Asturias is doing here as a region. So they claim that mm -hmm. they are requesting money on behalf of many regions within Indeed. Spain. Um, was that ever so slightly duplicitous? Was there any indication that they were actually having conversations with Cantabria and other regions in order to actually distribute that money? Or is this very much a case of them sort of saying, yeah, we, you just need to pay us the money for all of the regions. We'll handle how it gets handed out. You don't worry. And actually, there's every intention of keeping this money for themselves because they absolutely see that Britain is just hurling money at Spain at this moment in time without really knowing what it's getting spent on and not really seeming to care much either? Well, um, I, I, I know there is little evidence for initial contacts between Cantabria, Santander and, and Asturias to coordinate requests. But then I do not have more evidence of any more contacts to distribute the money. Maybe because also 
uh, Santander was occupied by the French from November 1808. But what about before? So, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Complicated times. I mean, they were, weren't they? I mean, <laughs> no, nothing about this was simple. Yeah. And let, let's just make it a little bit more complicated and throw the mm -hmm. the gorillas into the mix. Um, because already they're playing a role in this story. You know, this this perception that it, it takes time. Well, of course, it takes time to form a gorilla, gorilla band. That's a given. But they're, they're involved even in the first few months of the war. So what are they doing? Um, and I guess this particular band that forms in the Cantabrian region, how does it come into being? Um, in the might not be at this very first moment in May 1808, because every man in Santander was recruited to form a Cantabrian army to defend the province from the Napoleonic troops and Vesiers. In fact, the most popular Cantabrian guerrilla guerrilla leader. Juan López Campillo, that was born in 1788, so was quite young uh, when the peninsula was struck, was part of the Primer Armamento Cantabro, the first Cantabrian army. So he participated in the fight in El Escudo, that's the mountain pass to enter Cantabria in June. Um, after Santander was occupied, he joined in 1809 Cuevillas el Mayor's guerrilla party in, in La Rioja, and later returned to Cantabria to have his own guerrilla band, Los Vengadores de Cantabria, the Avengers of Cantabria. And there are no evidence of contact with British agents before 1811. At that time, we have to bear in mind that um, guerrilla bands were undergoing a sorry, regularization process um, by which the band, the, the guerrilla groups on the northern coast were included, I'm not sure if that's the word, included in the Seventh Army and the Mendizabal. So Campillo's one was included in Porlier's Division de Vanguardia Cantabra. And those contacts with British agents were connected to requests, deliveries, but not just that, military and informative missions too. And between June, July 1811, um, Campillo was um, given muskets, guns, cartridges, swords by Captain Johnston, that was Walker's aide de camp, on three occasions. And even in 1812, 200 muskets were given to Campillo by Popham. Popham is again here. Um, he even took part in Popham's operation in August in 1812 to free Santander. So um, a far, I think that a further analysis of that relationship between British agents and the Cantabria, Cantabrian guerrilla, and also the guerrilla in Cantabria, that's not the same, is, is needed because there's evidence that there were far more contacts and collaboration that has been actually acknowledged, but haven't had the time to, to, to analyze it yet. I mean, I'm I'm now going to ask a follow-up question that is now really unpleasant. Um, bearing in mind what you've said that you know you haven't had the chance to to find the the evidence for this yet, but is there a sense that these conversations then help to influence 
strategy come 1813 when Wellington is looking for a different way to deal with the problem of French occupation of Portugal and then sort of seizes on this idea that actually maybe Santander is the key in terms of supply rather than everything coming from Lisbon as it needed to in the early stages. Is it this sort of contact, you know, people having conversations with individuals like Popham, with Letha, et cetera, et cetera, that help to kind of put Santander that bit more on the map when Wellington's looking for alternatives? Or is it just the port? The port is the best option out of others available on the North Coast? It could be because um, diversionary operations uh, on that on that coast, mm, there were several Anglo, Spanish, amphibious operations and lots of diversionary operations um, at the time um, were really helpful to divert French troops for, from other operations. So yeah, it, it might have helped in Wellington deciding for Santander's port. Yeah, that's a really good point that you've made very gently there, which is I've just gone and forgotten the whole thing that happens in 1812, i.e. the year before 1813, where Popham descends on the coast with a kind of mini flotilla and just ruins Caffarelli's summer by sailing up and down, landing. Yeah, that's probably more key. Yes, good point. And Popham being there... um, show the potential of Santander port for, for Wellington. He said, you have this port here, you can use it. Let's let's rewind back to the, the guerrillas. Um, this is the story of this band is one of those that particularly captures the British imagination. This ends up, this is another one of those stories that's back in the press, back in the UK, yes. right? Tell us about this. It's not directly connected to the gorilla, but to the bishop again, and his supposed defense, sword and crossing in hand of the province. Um, at the end, at the end of June, um, news arrived, reached Santander about a French advance through Reynosa, and then the bishop, together with a group of volunteers, decided to go there and reinforce um, General Velarde there that was defending that position. So. There, according to regional sources, British reports, the press, the bishop faced the enemy. So can you imagine that? A bishop dressed as such on his horse or mule, leading the troops, blowing sword. It's quite an impressive image that reminds me of the Crusades somehow. And that is the most repeated episode in the British press. And due to that, he was seen as the epitome of the Spanish patriot and the black legend again might have had something to do uh, here because the image of that fanatic clergy fitted perfectly so that was pretty good image but unfortunately he might not have had the opportunity was creation to confront the enemy because when he arrived there the troops were said to be withdrawing so he just led them to Potes, that was the core of Cantabrian resistance. So it was all representation, creation. And straight away, you can draw a direct line from those press reports all the way through to the caricatures that get produced right of 
of Spaniards dressed up in either sort of the sort of thing that Spaniards were probably wearing in in the 16th century, loading guns, or priests and nuns, you know, casually knifing yeah. Frenchmen and, and, and all of these kind of tropes that appear in Gilray's caricatures amongst others. Um, so it's really interesting that this is a story that, as you say, possibly because of the um, the the lack of understanding and the the tropes, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not quite looking for the word xenophobia. I'm looking for the oh words fail me, but the the negative and I don't know what the word is. I do not know what the word is. This is this is so frustrating. It's becoming funny. Um because of the the mm. perception, the negative perception that okay. people will go with that <laughs> because I'm floundering and people don't want to listen to seconds of dead air on this podcast. Because of the negative perceptions attached with, you know, like you're saying, black legend and and this idea that all of the, the Spanish people are are Catholics and you know because mm-hmm. we're a Protestant nation we don't like the Catholics and so therefore they're backward and all of these other tropes um that you know it all it all just kind of works quite nicely because there's a ridiculousness to this right this idea that priest in mm-hmm. full robes on mule riding mm-hmm. into battle against Napoleon's battle-hardened warriors these these are things that you can spin endlessly to be so fantastical that mm-hmm. they're kind of funny um indeed it yeah it lends itself quite well so there are two occupations of um of cantabria during this period that we're we're focusing on the first is just within june 1808 mm-hmm. right so what happens and why does this only last a short period of time yeah indeed there were three um all around the peninsula world there were three three occupations during this first time two as you, you said so the first one uh, on the fir- on the fourth of june once napoleon knew about santander's uprising he ordered Bessier to go there and calm the city, the town down but he didn't follow his orders and ordered merle uh, who was already in reynosa uh, to go with his troops to Valladolid to put down the uprising there. Quite a mistake because uh, Santander inhabitants understood that as a victory and encouraged them to keep fighting. So that made Napoleon furious for the strategic importance Santander had at the time too. So once Valladolid was um, calm, apparently calmed, Merle and Ducot advanced to Santander with, without much opposition. Here is where the, the bishop's episode feed. And he entered the town on the 23rd of June. And as you said, it was pretty short, just a fortnight. Because that because of that duality, sea, land, we have already been talking about, it made it impossible to um, fully defend Santander and even Cantabria without a huge amount of troops. So at the beginning of July, um, Reynosa was in a state of insurrection and Merle had to go there, leaving a small garrison in Santander. The thing is that on the 12th of July, um, French troops in Santander were evacuated for two reasons. 
those troops were required to protect Bessier's rear in its way again to Valladolid, and more importantly, Anglo-Spanish operations to free Santander. Um, it was uh, Nicolás Llano Ponte's troops and a British free fleet under Captain Atkins and also Roach, um, who was the one that insisted that something had to be done to free Santander, took took part in 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 this in this operation to free it. Okay, so then a second one comes. Is this the mm -hmm. the one sort of Napoleon comes south and then the Peninsula War almost gets wrapped up in the course of that that brutal uh, brutal for all sides um, winter campaign where you know Napoleon just sort of sweeps all of the um, all of the Spanish forces before him and then goes back north before everything's quite been mopped up. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in fact, that was the longer one because it lasted three and a half years from the 16th of November, 1808 to the 2nd, 3rd of August, 1812. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I can I can expand on, on that. Do you want me yeah, to? Okay. Please do, please yeah. do. Yeah, so on those very first months that were quite turbulent, and in November, the French advance, as you said, in the Basque country, forced the Spanish troops under Blake, including the Marques de la Romana's troops too, that had just joined the Spanish forces in the area, forced them to withdraw and uh, from Biscay. And after the defeat of uh, Espinosa de los Monteros, it was impossible to hold, them, hold the French back, even if Lee tried to do so. And then French troops occupied Santander and its province once more on the 16th of November. That, that showed the importance of defending Cantabria, Santander, because it was key to hold the French back. Once the French were in Santander, they would advance to Asturias and even Galicia. And at that time, Santander capitulated. It was left in the hands of um, the mayor, Bonifacio Rodriguez de la Guerra, and because the bishop had to run away due to the, the death sentence in British ships, first to Asturias and then in 1809 to England. That That's a different story. So from November 1808 to August 1812, the Royal Navy acquired more importance because Great Britain had to intensify the blockade on the coast to prevent French communications and delivery. So the, as we said before, there were plenty of diversionary operations and six Anglo-Spanish amphibious operations to free different coastal towns and villages in Cantabria, mainly Santander and Santonia. Not all of them were carried out, neither were them successful, but as we say, they helped diverting French troops who had to control the coast, protect garrisons from other missions indeed. Um, those operations led Spanish troops free Asturias and they avoid a French incursion in the north of Portugal. And I would say that the most important example of those amphibious operations uh, took place in October 1810, when following the Regency's orders, Mariano Renovales and the Commodore Robert Menz conducted an operation to free Santonia. Yeah, it was a complete failure because due to terrible weather conditions, lots of sheep 
sank and lots of soldiers died. But okay, well, it was an attempt in that direction. And the closer Wellington got to the northern coast, the more diversionary operations took place on the coast. And uh, naval operations were even more important in 1812, as we said, just to reinforce the 7th Spanish Army, to divert troops from Wellington's advance, and to open new channels of communication with him. It was essential to get control of the main ports on that part of the coast, and Popham got into action. I mean, Popham would love the fact that we're talking about him in a, in yeah, a podcast sure. that's essentially about Cantabria. You know, even in the Spanish history, I am important and popular and well-known is yeah. how he would absolutely spin it. If Jackie's listening to yeah, this, yeah. she will be cackling right now because she knows it's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, indeed. This has been really interesting. Just one question, I guess, to round things off, because I'm always interested in how different nations remember conflicts um i i guess uh, um, i wonder if there's sort of a, a regionality to memory of the peninsula war in spain and i don't know if that's the case or not but i'm i'm just curious it's not like britain where we never get occupied so we don't have those sort of local connections and, and memories what is modern memory of the Peninsula War like in Cantabria specifically today? And how, if at all, does that vary with the rest of Spain? I think that's the most difficult question to, to answer, because I think that Santander has been the great forgotten in the Peninsula War, as big battles did not take place here. It seems to be forgotten. But it played it, it's, it played a really, really important part in the general development of events and people suffer the consequences of war even after the war was over in the case of Santander as Antonia was still occupied in 18 at the, uh, in 1814 it is true that from the bicentenary of the peninsula war there, there had been fantastic attempts to give its place to Santander by large Cantabria books, articles, conferences. There, there, there have been works that had helped to contextualize events in Cantabria, works directly connected to Cantabria by, for example, Sanchez Gomez or Palacio Ramos that reviewed and updated important events in Cantabria. And they have also given a bit more of importance to British intervention in specific events. However, a detailed analysis and a systematic analysis of primary sources connected to British presence and actions in Santander is still pending. And that was still pending. And that's why I started my PhD on that because I wanted people to know about British per presence and performance in Santander because that might help us understand better the history of the province and what happened in, in here. So from time to time, there, there are events in San, in Cantabria connected to the peninsula where they are organized. For example, last year, there was an exhibition in the provincial archive uh, where regarding the peninsula where and several conferences, conferences took place on the issue too. And people, local people seem to be quite interested in, in the issue. And also they are quite surprised about British presence and importance in, in Santander at that time. But I think that 
there's much, still much to do. And regarding the Peninsula War and British presence in, in Cantabria, because right now, I think much more could be to for people to know and to remember that things is key. I was going to say you are the go-to person on this topic right now. Why Why was this the thing that grabbed you? Are you local to the region? Did you grow up there? I'm from there. Yeah, I was born in a village close to uh, to Santander. It's called Torre de la Vega. Yeah. yeah. And I when I was um, helping uh, Alicia Laspra investigating, I started seeing references to Santander, Santander, and I got really interested about that. And as um, not much had been written on that, I said, okay, that's my topic. There you go. And the rest, they say, is history. Sylvia, yeah. it's been great talking to you. You are on Twitter, I believe. Yes. Is yeah. that the place for people to go if they want to ask further questions about this? What's your Twitter handle? Oh, wait. Silvia Gregorio. <laughs> okay, folks, usual That's story. It. There's a description um, to every episode. I put the Twitter handles of all of my guests in the relevant um, ones. So just click the description. You'll find Sylvia's uh, Twitter handle. Sylvia, we'll look forward to the book coming out on this based on the PhD thesis. Um, and do make sure that you come back to, to talk more Spanish perspectives uh, on the peninsula, because I would love to hear more from you. But thank you so much for your time today. Thanks to you. Thank you very much for having me here. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Bear in mind that if you want to enjoy a specific perk from a tier, like, for example, joining the monthly online courses that I run, you can now edit your pledge to secure individual perks rather than a whole package. Drop me a message via Patreon or Twitter for more details. Shoutouts to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice de Graff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandra Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alastair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schrager, Chris Kimball, uh, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, and David Malinsky. The Admirals, the ones who get those monthly uh, socials, Stephen Ashworth, David Priest, Rob Cochlan, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, and John Haynes. The Marshals, that's Ger Brown, Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, and Sean Sullivan. The Emperors, Graham Swydenbank, and J.C. Kaiser. And last, but by no means, no means least, the Legion de Scholars. Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.